History Lecture 53. This is Rabbi Blywais. Uh, we're now going to talk about, we, we introduced yesterday the um, general Jewish view of Christianity and, and, and what, what are the sources, what do, we, what do we know? We know that they tell a certain story, uh, that's what's out there in the world. I'm presuming here that the, their version of the events is familiar enough. It doesn't seem to have much of a basis outside their New Testament and their later church teachings. What emerges from our tradition is a, in striking ways, a very different tale. Uh, most of the Gemaras were censored later by the church, and so for centuries they were underground, unavailable to a lot of Jews. Of course, Jews being a very uh, resourceful group, we saved them, we, we, we hid them, so those are still available. When, you, when eventually the Vilna Shas came out, the censored versions were not included and very cleverly art scroll, when they translated Shas, omitted, continued the tradition of omitting those sections of the Talmud. There aren't so many of them, honestly. So it's not that egregious. It doesn't seem to stand out so much when they omit those sections of the Talmud. And it's all for the best because we know that a, a certain percentage of the uh, readers of the Arshkul Talmud are Christian and they would probably not take too favorably to the, uh, the, the account there, even though, at this point, one presumes that the cat's out of the bag with the internet and the widely available other versions of the Talmud that they, that they kind of know the Jewish version of the story. Yeah. When the Vilna came out? When the Vilna Shas, yeah. Did, did they have, like, on record, the uncensored, like, available? Or was that it, was, there was, it, it was known, and it was available in certain areas. So and they have actually included it if they wanted to? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know exactly if it was uh, deliberate or simply, you know, that they omitted it because they didn't have it. It was underground for, for a long time. It was illegal for, for a long period. They omitted it because they don't want us. Yeah, not many. Yeah, and we're going to talk about them right now. But there aren't that many because they were omitted. <laughs> no, no. Even those that we have, there there aren't so numerous. Not because they were omitted, but because um, I mentioned earlier uh, yesterday that one of the ways to deal with this new threatening sect was to not make a big deal about them, and 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 not exactly ignore them, but also not to play up any real importance or significance. Um, and not to attribute any, any greatness to them. That was, that was a deliberate choice. I would assume that the Vilna Shas, they probably were still living during times of censorship and persecution, and it was simply dangerous to include these passages. We, it's so hard for us to imagine that today we live in, under such circumstances of freedom of speech and relative freedom of religion that it wasn't that many years ago that Jews had to live in terror of the Christian world. Plus in Vilna too. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't that safe of a haven. It was a very Christian. Enemy. For sure, for sure. Not just Vilna. Really, throughout Europe, and after centuries of persecution, we didn't want to tell this part of the story. Honestly, uh, the when I put together a, my separate file on Christianity, I was struck by the relative dearth of sources on the topic in halacha too. I was at first, I, I don't have, a, I don't have a, an explanation for this, but I remember when I looked at the relevant section of the Aruch al-Shulchan, which is a comprehens more comprehensive equivalent to the Mishnah Bura, the Aruch al-Shulchan, and when you look in that section in the Yeridea that should have had it, it's not there, and it's at the very end, the way it's usually fe um, featured is you, it comes in three sections of the Yeridea, and this section on Avodah would have maybe appeared at the end of one of the uh, editions. I thought, oh, this must be at the beginning of the next edition. So I pulled the next, the next, you know, Krach Beit, the, the, the second volume of Yerodea, and it's not there either. I thought, oh, I guess I have a defective version that they simply skipped those pages. No, he didn't write about them. And I don't have a, I don't know this for sure. I can simply theorize and logically guess that he omits the whole section of Odazara because of the danger of a Jew writing about such themes in, I mean, in his case, also, uh, you know, also, uh, you know, Tsarist Russia and persecution, and you had to, you had to, you had to be careful. Rabbi Lazarus showed us that in the Rambam. Yeah. Uh, there's the list of, uh, of 
Paris? Yes, Prakim. Uh, chapters. And there was one halakha missing. Right. He goes also, the Rambam was also censored. I, I mean, I have all this. It's not, it's not even a good censor, though. It goes 14, 16. Like right. When you look at probably the most famous daf of the Gemara that deals with Yashka, it's Sanhedrin and Gimel, that's where we're holding, Abem Gimel Amad Aleph. They actually did a pretty good job of covering it up because it looks like the Surah Sadaf. Meaning the daf comes down and has a seems to end in a logical place where it would end. It's simply, if you look long enough at the page, the page is a little bit short. There's a whole, there's a lot more blank area at the bottom than usually exists, and you might not otherwise notice it if you're not looking. It might look vaguely normal, but then you, you kind of look and say, well, there's a whole, they could have fit in more Gemara on this page, and indeed, once upon a time, they did, and in many editions. We actually, in our very limited library upstairs here in Dara, the maroon, dark brown, kind of light brown version of the Gemara is one of the Gemaras that actually has all those censored sections reinserted and printed with a different um, smaller typeface so that you'll know that was, that was uh, censored but it's now been uh, made available. They, um, as we said, we're not sure if they're about the same man and I'm going to summarize uh, so as not to dwell too much on the topic but what emerges is the following story. A certain man probably named Yeshu, probably the son of Steda, has a mother who's named Miriam. She's a promiscuous woman, hardly the Virgin Mary that they, uh, that they create out of her. Uh, and arguably, what the church fathers are trying to do is, you know, they have this awkward, if it was true, reality that this woman was an adulteress. How do you make the mother of God, uh, how do you deal with that? Well, what you do is you turn it on its head. And you invert the whole story by making her, no, no, she wasn't an adulteress, she wasn't promiscuous, she was a virgin. And that's even the way she conceived and gave birth, as such. And somehow you tell the most outlandish story, and the more outlandish, the more believable. But you hear that, that there is that mechanism in human logic that if you tell a, a, a white lie, a fib, so then you might be questioned. But if you tell a completely extreme, outrageous lie, it's somehow strangely true. We'll see similar psychology at work when we jump ahead a few centuries in the period of Shabtai Tzvi. The more outrageous his behavior, somehow the more followers he attracted. Go figure. But there's something in human psychology that seems to accept a great lie more than a small fib. So um, she's a hairdresser by profession, and she has an adulterous affair with a certain Pandera. And later, as an adult, and then there's a whole play on words, Bensteda, Sata, Da, she, was, she went astray, it's a play on words, all kinds of questions about the names in the Gemara. Later, as an adult, he hears the rumors and confronts his mother and says, if you don't tell me the truth, I'm going to kill you. Hardly the, uh, the uh, saintly, Yeshu says that to Miriam. She tells him the story that he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's of an illegitimate birth. He's, she, she claims during her chuppah that her husband left her there and one of the king's ministers came in to be with her. We know that, that such things happened back in the days of the Greeks. Uh, that's her story. So that what emerges from here is that Yoshka may very well be literally a mamzer. The Rambam says he wasn't literally a mamzer. The Rambam seems to subscribe to the view that his father, well, because his father was a goy, and a union between a, not a Jewish woman and a, and a goy, a non-Jewish man, doesn't produce mamzerus. She's certainly subject to the punishment of kares, but the child doesn't have the stain of mamzerus on him. But the Rambam uses the term mamzer anyway, like you say, metaphorically, meaning he was certainly of, of, of um, non-illustrious roots, and it was used the term it was used in a pejorative sense. The it may be that he was the same man who returned with Yoshua ben Parachia, the students, uh, as he smuggled sorcery on his flesh. Remember the story to elude the guards because the Egyptians didn't like people to give their secrets of sorcery away. Um, I mentioned this story, let's consider for just a moment, if this is indeed Yeshu, they're at the Pundak, meaning the, the hotel on the way back to Eretz Yisrael, and as he's there, he notices that the innkeeper's wife has very beautiful eyes, and he praises them, which is, <coughs> from any Jewish sensibility, completely out of line. We don't go around praising random women, it's not modest. And Yeshua ben Prachia, his Rebbe, 
puts him into nidui, which is a kind of excommunication. And what seems, you can maybe be medayic, I think this is Rev Miller makes this observation that it's probably not for the first time, otherwise the Rebbe wouldn't have responded so harshly. This must have been a pattern of behavior in this student Yeshu. Um, Yeshu is, as they used to be, a Rebbe's excommunication meant a lot once upon a time, and he's appropriately uh, humbled and, 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 and his spirit is broken, and he approaches his Rebbe to try to come back several times and is rejected, now he's rejected because uh, one of the times he comes back and Yoshua means to accept him, but he's saying Kriyashma. And Yoshua doesn't realize this and goes off the way, goes off the path and turns to Bodhisattva. But it's interesting. This is the part that we didn't talk about before. Chazal say, Le'olam tehesmol doche v'yomin mekareves. You should always, as it were, metaphorically, let your left hand push away, but your right hand should draw close. You know that expression? The right brings close, the left hand puts, puts, pushes away. You don't actually translate that in so many different versions. Right hand positive, left hand negative. Oh, very nice. Absolutely. For sure, for sure. And it's, it's, a philosophy, it's a parenting philosophy. You should have both mechanisms. You should have a mode of punishment, but also definitely a stronger mode of reward. Most of us emphasize the negative, and we forget to be positive, and certainly the right is more important. We also know that the right hand is the mitzvah hand. That's why a lot of halachas come out of that. That's why we do mitzvahs, unless you're a lefty. We do mitzvahs with our right hand. We lead with the right when we step forward in tefillah. We shouldn't wipe. When we're cleaning ourselves after doing gedolim, going to the bathroom, we shouldn't wipe with the right. The right has a, has a greater holiness than the left, and, no, and, no, and, no, and many no, others. You know Putting on the shoes that? with the right, but tying with the left, yes. You know they use that in Chinese um, medicines? That whole um, theory with the right hand use of that Interesting you say it comes into Chinese medicines. Are we responsible for that? Of course we are responsible for everything, although I can't prove that. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure if there's a connection. If, Maybe it's intuitively exactly. logical. I don't know. So that requires more discussion because lefties, in some areas, they leave with the left, but not all. In any case, Chazal say that um, they, they, they make this statement, and then they say that two figures in history made this mistake of being too strong with their left rejectionist hand, and they cite specifically Elisha. The, son, the, 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 the Navi, Elisha Hanavi, who, remember, was very, very stern with his student Gehazi. Gehazi eventually went out and warned Naaman and took on his leprosy, look, look, took on his uh, tzara'as. And, um, and the second example is here, is Yeshua ben Parachia, who on some level is given the responsibility of putting Yeshu away and, and leading to uh, the apostasy, the, uh, the heresy of his student Yeshu. And... They, they do seem to say that it's Yeshu Hanotsri, Jesus the Christian, when they, when, when they say that. At least that's one source. And as I say, the Rishonim debate whether this, this Yeshu is the same Yeshu, not entirely clear. Yes, good example. He's not cited per se in Chazal here, but I like the association. It's good to do that. Uh, right, so Rechavam said that he would beat them with scorpions, right? And, and that he'd be harsher than his father. And you have to be careful of being overly harsh. Today, more so than ever, it seems the post-game indicate this, because we're a generation that's very soft, very sensitive, uh, and, and very easily um, alienated. Um, parents, teachers, and the like have to be exceedingly careful with uh, with people. And uh, one one false word, one one overly harsh punishment, and that could compromise a person's Yiddishkeit for sure. Um, once upon a time, it was accepted that parents, teachers use what's called corporal punishment, um, meaning you hit the kid, spare the rod, spoil the child. And um, today, with there's a machlokis still in the post scheme. Some post schemes still consider corporal punishment as, legi- as legitimate and even lechatchila, a way to discipline a kid. But even those post schemes who say that you should do that, and others say, no, today we're too soft and sensitive, and kids, you hit the kid, and that's going to send the kid off the derech and do terrible things, uh, traumatize them. We're a generation of low self esteem. Um, even the post scheme who say the former position that, yes, you can hit the kid. But you can only do so if you are 100% confident that there's not one degree of anger that mixes in with the, with the punishment. This is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me, kid. 
right? If a person says that, then he's got it backwards. And, um, and, and if there's anger, and with many parents, honestly, there really is anger. No? I don't know what your experience is with this, with this area, but uh, it's very hard not to feel that you're giving it to the kid and getting a little gratification, a little vengeance there on the part of the parent. So in any case, they, they fault Yoshua ben Prachia, who's otherwise a tzaddik, one of the gdolim, but, uh, but maybe he was overly harsh with Yeshu. Yeshu eventually is found to be Chayat Misa. He's subject to capital crime uh, uh, um, for, for a number of sins. Chazal fault him as follows. He is a sorcerer. Machshefa lo sichia. A sorcerer will live. Remember, we saw the, the, um, the, the 80 witches that Shima ben Shetach has put to death. He is Chayav uh, Misa for magical healing, acts of healing that he accomplishes. And um, it wasn't just magic stam, it was magic that led other people to get excited about idolatry. Um, and uh, and that, 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 was a, that was a grievous sin. He incited people, as we said, to idolatry in general. He pretends to be the Messiah. Talk about Yashka, the Nunsri, right at the end of the Second Temple period. Um, and eventually he inspires an entirely variant religion outside of Torah in the name of Torah. You know that till today the Christian world sees themselves as the proper Jews. How else do they read the, what they call the Old Testament? Every single place that it, it talks about Israel in the Old Testament, they say, oh, that's us. And the supposed Jewish people, nah, nah, they were written out of the story long ago. They're not so really Israel. It's Israel and it's not actually talking about Israel. That's how they read it. That's their parshanut on the subject. So it's very convenient reading. Consistently reference Israel in the New Testament is not necessary. Old Testament, they got to deal with that. Right, what they call the Old Testament. So anytime it says Yisrael, they all know non, non, wink, wink, that that's referring to them, not us. Can everybody speak at once, please? Sure. Ilan, go. It's referring to their predecessors, so it's not, it is referring to us, but they think that they became... Right, that's fair enough. Meaning, meaning, it's not totally off when they say that because all Christians originally were Jewish once upon a time. So, but, but it really is. What we will become a major tenet of Christian theology is that uh, Yoshka changes everything. There used to be, this is Paul and later Peter, I uh, used to be an idea of mitzvos. They say there's no longer, there are no longer mitzvos. Jesus died to save humanity and to save your sin, and for your sins. All you need to do is believe in your heart and then everything else follows logically. And therefore, therefore there are no more uh, mitzvos that are, that are compulsory, no, not binding on the individual. Um, at one point, they gave up on, when they realized they were not going to attract a sizable Jewish following. The Jews had realized that this was nonsense, and so they turned to the greater pagan world to convert the entire world. And the Christian mission then became the mission of Israel. They were the, this concept I think we talked about on the tour as well, is what's called replacement theology. They have officially replaced the Jews as the next logical step in the tradition, in, in the Messiah. Um, another word for it, since you, in case you run out of multisyllabic words, is supersessionism. All that means is they've superseded the Jews. Who will come and do that a few centuries hence? The Muslims. will do exactly the same thing to both the Jews and the Christians and say that they are the next step. They embrace Mos Musa. The Muslims say Musa was a Nabi, you remember this? They, were, they embraced Yisu, Jesus, as a Nabi, but the only definitive Nabi, as far as they're concerned, is Muhammad, as the final replacement of all, of all, of all, um, of all prophets. Yes? What's your, uh, what's your opinion on the, the, what it says in the Zohar, the Zohar about uh, Paul, Saul and Paul, that he was actually the head of the Sanhedrin and that he actually went <laughs> as a Jewish spy? I think you've got it wrong. You'll have to show me inside. That's not clear. You'll show me. You'll show me. I don't think that's accurate. I know that there is. Well, you'll state your head of me now. We'll get to Pete. We'll get to Paul. We'll get to Peter. They both play a, a, an important role. The um, no, he's not a major. He's not a. Oh, oh, Yochanan. We talked about it yesterday. Right. We talked about him a good deal. He right. We we, we did spend some time on him. The. Um, Now, the Gemara of Odazara defines Notsrus as idolatrous. 
what exactly, what is, how much idolatrous it is in another class, I go into this in great depth, it's really relevant, there's a lot of relevant halacha to learn about this, I'm not going to do this, this is a history class, I'll just say briefly, the Rambam holds that it is grade A idolatry, that's not the consensus in the post scheme. Most post scheme hold like the Bali Tosvos, that it's what's called shituf, they combine the belief in one God with the belief in other stuff, Namely, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, what they call the Holy Trinity. And that's why it's a kind of idolatry with trappings of monotheism, ultimately not monotheistic. Practically, what this means is they are idolatrous. We can't go into their churches. We have to avoid them. We can't look at pictures of their various Rishayim, starting, starting with Yashka and Mary and Paul and Peter and all the disciples and really all the major church fathers as well, um, because they're, 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 if they're sorcerers, if they incite idolatry, then certainly they, uh, they halakhically fall under the category of, of Russia, of, of a wicked evildoer, yeah. Um, isn't the Holy Trinity really just three different components of the same thing? So some of the modern, liberalized, secularized Christians try to cover up, and they say the Trinity is really all one thing. But actually, no, the Trinity really is three. And most normal, standardized Christians believe that, that they're three different functions. He is, for later accounts, the Christians will say that Yashka was 100% human and 100% God. And that doesn't add up mathematically. Now, the story goes on. As the Gemara talks about it, the Gemara says that the Nutstream, therefore, uh, these early Nutstream, um, probably came from the idea of Nazareth, Notzrat in Hebrew. There is a source, the Abarbanel says that no, the term Notzri comes from Netzer, uh, from a pasuk v'netzer mesharashav yifre, the uh, sprout of, their, of, of the roots will, will grow from this. Um, there is a Me'iri on the Gemara of Bodhazara that says that actually when the Gemara calls Notzrus of Bodhazara, it's not referring to the Christian people at all. Uh, he says it's referring to worshippers of Nebuchadnezzar. Netzar, I mentioned that a while ago. The Meiri is a is a das yachid is a, is an is a, a minority opinion that's rejected by the poskim. Um, most most poskim understand that there are idolatrous roots to the religion. The Sanhedrin calls him, tries him for capital crimes, for murder. They even call for for uh, forty days for any. Buddy who knows a way of being malamed schus to bring some kind of merit to this man to come and testify. That's what they did indeed in the Fashos when it came to any of the capital crimes. You want to give him a chance. You don't want to kill him. And they give him a special chance. The Gemara there, the Gemara that's, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's our Gemara in Sanhedrin that says that in his case he had ties, close ties to the Malchus, to the monarchy. And they were afraid. You had to handle this one with care because if you killed Yashka and he had some connections with the powerful beings, that could have terrible repercussions on the well, Jewish people. His father, they said, was part of the king's. His father Yushka's father? Yushka's father's identity is a little bit tricky. He might have been with the king. Might have been that he had his way with Miriam in the bridal chamber. All these things are doubtful. They're questionable. We don't know. In the end, nobody comes forward. They kill him. So don't tell Mel Gibson, but the uh, indeed the Sanhedrin does execute Jesus, Yushka, according to this view. And um, he, is, he gets skila, he's therefore stoned, and then as the procedure in skila works, he's then his body is hanged. Uh, it takes place not in Yerushalayim, but in Lod, uh, near the airport today in the city of Lod. And um, this is followed by a trial of his five disciples. One of the disciples' names seems to parallel their disciples, Matai. But in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, the Mati, or Matthew, uh, Matai, all these names are actually subject to drushes about how guilty they really were. That's what they, they, the Chazal were able to des- derive their various uh, sins from their names themselves. Wait, why do they say uh, the Why do they say that? Because that's their account. According to their, I told you, there's their story and there's our story. Well, no, well, like their story has no foundation. In their they story, they say that, that um, there was a figure named Judas who was Jewish, because all the figures back there were Jewish, who betrayed him, but it was the Romans who done it. Our story, I mean, again, according to this Gemara in Sanhedrin and Gimel Amid Aleph, is, and Rambam says at least that is referring to Yeshu. Others disagree uh, that, that no, in fact, we done it. No, but so we, they originally said that Jesus killed us. 
No, never. That was a distortion. That was a later distortion. Their original account was that the Romans done it. It was a much late. It was a much later calumny, lie that they invented that the Jews did it. In fact, it's not a lie because we told that story, but they ignored our version. They censored our Talmud and they said, no, no, the Jews. The, technically, the Jews didn't kill Christ, and it was much later that uh, that they that they, that they it, for their own political self-serving purposes, they then would say the Jews did it so that they can go on rampages and go, let's say, in the Rhineland and under the Crusaders and then use it as a prevarication, as an excuse to go and kill a bunch of Jews. But they changed Go ahead, Kamar. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure um, a lot of the Christians, um, before even back then, said that the Jews killed them and that's where, um, it's, that's where they get the main, the main, uh, the main um, basis that, that the new Christians replaced the Jews because the Jews had, were blind and I don't think that's accurate. It's like this: the 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 original their story is the Romans killed Jesus. They crucified him like they cru crucified so many hundreds of other people, not just Jews. Um, the the reason why the Jews are persecuted, their ideology goes like this: is because we had a chance to accept the Savior Jesus as the Messiah, and we rejected it. Since we rejected God, God rejected the Jews, and hence the whole concept of the wandering Jew and the persecuted Jew, that the Christian world had then a theological interest to make sure was sustained. Right. And so they, in fact, were the greatest persecutors, persecutors of the Jews throughout history in order to keep us down as a proof. Aha, see the Jews, are, you know, see the, the, the God has rejected right. the Jews, right. but not because we killed them. In the 1960s, I'm ahead of us, but we're talking about all these important topics. In the 1960s, arguably one of the most important declarations of the 20th century was what's called Vatican II. Where the Vatican came and made a number of declarations, including officially apologizing for the, uh, for the horrors, for the crimes committed uh, by the church and in the name of Christianity um, over the many, many uh, centuries against the Jewish people. And they, they, they condemned that and they apologized for it. Um, and th that, that's the famous part, where they repudiate all the anti-Semitism of the past. That's the official church line till today, since the 1960s. Another part that's not well known, and I, I, very, very significant, is they say, we don't believe that Jesus was killed by Jews. That's not our story. They say that officially. And then they have this, and that part is famous. That's why everybody quotes Vatican II. The second part is not as famous, and that is like this. Even if the Jews, let's say for argument's sake, had killed Jesus, we hold the death of Jesus was essential, was imperative for humanity. It saved the world. If anything, we should be grateful to the Jews for doing exactly what we held to be a great thing in the, in the world's history. The death of Jesus was what redeemed the world, they said in Vatican II. Um, there are fringe groups of Christians. Mel Gibson's father and Mel Gibson too really are members of these extreme Catholics that, that formally reject the conclusions of Vatican II and hold a lot of these other ideas that, you know, they still hold that Jews killed Jesus and all the rest of that. Okay. Uh, is, that, is, that, is that even one of the best? No, it's a Roman death. No, it's a classic mode of killing by the Romans. One way of trying... If you're interested in, in this topic, I'm not doing a comprehensive survey of my, of my notes on this, but if you're interested in any of this, I do, it, do this in a little more depth and, and with a lot of fun information on, in my, on my stuff that I have online on Christianity. Maybe, I mean, no, but shouldn't have been Right, no, so what I, what I say there, and I'll quote for you now, um, one theory is that when the, the form of murder of Mises Bastien of Scylla, of stoning, involves being thrown off a roof, a large stone is then thrown on the person. If he doesn't die in either of the above um, instances, so then many stones are thrown at him. Eventually he dies by way of stoning, and then his body is hanged, and uh, hanging, as it looked back in the day, might have resembled crucifixion. Hence the early Christian confusion and calling it a crucifixion, which was a, a common kind of death in those days. So they conflated the stories, confused the stories, and, uh, and, and that's where they get their version. Now, minim, the term min, heretic in the Gemara, we'll hear a lot about them. One, brief, one explanation of the term min, mem, yud, nun, is it stands for ma'amine, Yeshu Hanotri, or alternately, Mamine Yeshu Hanochri, those who believe in Jesus the Goy or Jesus the Notri. That's what mean, uh, one explanation for mean. Um, and the Rambam tells us that such people who believe in it, 
they, what they do with the Tanakh, they read the Tanakh as if it predicts Jesus. Um, they have all kinds of distortions. We know this, I mentioned this, the Septuagint translation distorts the original meaning. And the most famous one is when they predict, they show an Apostle Genishaya the prediction of the virgin birth. The problem with that, their whole foundation, one of the major arguments for the Old Testament predicting the whole story of Jesus was that it, it all is predicated on the translation of the word Alma, which indeed does not mean virgin. It means young woman. So they got it all wrong from the basis. They say that's one of their major proofs, but the proof is based on a mistranslation. The... Uh, <clears throat> How do they look at the Old Testament? According to the words of Augustine, one of their architects, one of the early church fathers from the uh, 4th, 5th century, he says, in the Old Testament, the new is hidden. And it's all hidden. And they find it. And they read into it. I mentioned this yesterday by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jesus isn't mentioned once in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you're clever enough, you'll read into it. You'll find proof. Because if you're looking for it, it's going to be there. So he said, the New Testament, it's all hidden. And in the New Testament, the old is manifest. Right, that's Augustine's, one of his famous lines. So they, uh, the Akedus Yitzchak, you know, that's Jesus up there. Oh, that's God up there offering his son Jesus on the altar. No? That's how they read the Akedah. The burning bush, you know, when God spoke to Jesus from that the burning no bush? Sense, though. They believe the first testament. God, wait, when in the Old or when in the New Testament did, uh, did God speak to Jesus through a burning bush? You know, I know, you thought that was Moshe's name written there, but they know really who it's referring to. It's Yoshka. That's how they read it. Don't confuse reality with, it, with, with, with uh, the way they read it. Remember, one of their church fathers, Tertullian, who I often quote, came up with this line. He didn't actually come up with the line. It's attributed to him, probably incorrectly, but it more or less captures it. He said the line in Latin is, credo quia absurdum. I believe because it's absurd. And you missed the earlier discussion when we said sometimes in the history of humanity, the more outrageous the story, somehow the more believable it gets. Well, yeah. So the more you can twist things, the more you can say, right, I believe because it's absurd. Right, of course that makes sense. Yes. Okay. And then there's no refutation. Don't confuse rational argument with any of this. Well, the thing is, though, the, the more outrageous it does sound, the less possible it is someone to have made it up. Because it's really reverse psychology. Right, like, right. it's reverse psychology. I, I think that's what's going on here. So, um, right, and they, in turn, can't understand how blind the Jews are. I, I told you the story of Rabbi Wine inviting, maybe I just told you because you've heard me already, but no, you, I told it here even? Yeah. Ah. But otherwise, no looks of recognition. So very briefly, for the argument's sake, the nun comes with her parish to the... Uh, she wants to see an Orthodox synagogue because she wants to know where Jesus really started out. He was an Orthodox Jew, so how do those Orthodox Jews live together? At the end of the tour, they're in the synagogue, and she asks, can we say a chapter of Psalms? I told you this, Aaron? No? Yeah, you remember this. Okay, so I'll briefly then. So he says... Oh, I did tell recently. Yeah, so he says, um, okay, let me see your version of Psalms. And she said, what's the problem? It's, your old, it's, it's our Old Testament. It's your Bible. What's the difference? And then he looks at it and he said, you can say everything except for that line. And, um, and, and she doesn't understand why not. He says, you can't say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the, uh, the shadow of death, my Lord Jesus is, will, will surely protect me. And he showed her the Hebrew and she said, oh, she never realized. She thought all these years the Jews are so stubborn and so blind that we don't even see Jesus' name written right there in the text. Well, lady, your translation said Jesus, but it wasn't there in the original. Yeah. Um, Shaul of Tarsus. Uh, Paul, in Hebrew it's called Paul, Paulus. Uh, some darshan, Poelos. Like he tried to do miracles. Poelos. Um, was brought down as a student of Rabbi Gamliel Hazakim. Remember Rabbi Gamliel Azakin, the grandson of Hillel, the first Rabban in history? Um, to a large degree, he is the primary architect of this new religion. Yoshka himself, according to their account, was not interested in making a new religion or in altering the religion. Uh, I'll quote you just for the sake of argument. You know the Old Testament is Asr, and it needs to be burned if you find one for the halakhic record. However, to understand where they're coming from, I'm going to quote you a verse in English. Sure, even their Old Testament needs to be. If they write a kosher Torah in Hebrew with the Shem's name in it, the halacha is you take it and you burn it. 
because it's written by a mean. Anything written by a heretic is the antithesis of Kedusha. Somebody asked with Moshe Feinstein, is that okay? Can you burn it? He said, oh, absolutely. He said, I did. That's also burnable. If he's, it depends. You have to be sure that he's a certifiable mean. If, he, if he's writing it as a kofar, and that's his intention, when he's writing a sham, he doesn't mean a sham. Different, different, uh, different kavanah altogether. If he doesn't keep Shabbos? That's more questionable. Certainly it's a problem. But I don't know if it requires burning. That may be a shayla. Yeah, but if you don't, but like believing God is very like personal. Not even like how you, not even how you believe in God, but how between me and you, we might think of God as different things, even within the, the spectrum. Within the spectrum, as long as it's legitimately within the Torah realm, but then that's so, one thing. It's so personal, just based on how how different humans have different experiences. There are the certain reality. red lines. There are certain clear red lines. Oh, okay. There really are. I mean, you know, you can talk about the anima means. Ah, you want to tell me that uh, the Rav Yosef Albo argued with Rambam's 13 anima means. Fine. There may be some room for flexing. But there's certain things that are unquestionably beyond the pale. Like not believing. Yeah. Not believing. Right. Stating otherwise. Writing is a, writing is a Jews for Jesus. The Jesus is the Messiah. That's pretty evident what their, what their agenda is. So, um, Yashka, I was making the point, Yashka, for his part, was actually into keeping Torah. The verse says, don't think I have come to you to come to do away with the Torah or the words of the prophets. Uh, it's, a book, it's, it's in the book of Matthew. I come merely to fulfill them, one who will loosen one of the smallest precepts or teach others to do so shall be called, to, uh, called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So if you hear the idea, he said, keep the Torah, keep the mitzvahs. He never had the idea that you should do away with the mitzvahs. So that would be Shaul, and then later Peter as well, the first pope. He effectively takes early Christianity, which had been languishing in persecution. The Romans couldn't stand the Christians any more than the Jews, and arguably they liked them less. And he takes it, and in order to attract, they couldn't attract large Jewish numbers. Paul, Shaul of Tarsus, was a master salesman. Uh, he could make a great used car salesman today. And he packaged, this is the way I think a very helpful s summary, what the invention of Christianity was. He took many of the beautiful ideals and ethical principles of Torah and repackaged it for the pagan masses. Took away those pesky, inconvenient mitzvahs. Who wants to clean for Pesach after all? And, uh, and, and all those things that would be seen as a burden that the pagan people didn't, wouldn't want to subscribe to. And, and, and yet preserve, we already saw how they plagiarized and they took principles, some of the beautiful teachings of, we just saw Hillel, do unto, uh, do unto, don't do to others what you don't like to be done to yourself. Well, that's also, that's a, that, that was taken and, and Matthew, another verse in Matthew, explicitly teaches that, do, don't do to others what you don't like to do to yourself. Well, you hear the idea, and as a human being with an ashama, with an insults that comes from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, you hear it, you think, MS, it's true. And even pagans have that, insults have that spark of divinity within them. They hear these ideas and you, you, you think, wow, that's gorgeous. I want to subscribe. You go up to the Christian proselyte, who's the proselytizer, who's coming after you and want, wants to attract your neshama, and you say, okay, that's a powerful idea. How do I sign on? What's the deal? And they say, sign on. Are you kidding? We'll give you all you can eat. Uh, service for three. Uh, they'll give you all kinds of free set of steak knives. And they'll give you a whole package deal. And what's the catch? No catch. All you have to do is believe in Yashka. It's the easiest package to accept. No wonder they took off. They went viral. It took a while. Actually, it wasn't immediate that it went viral. But eventually, it took them a while. Actually, it took them a while. But eventually, that they would go viral makes complete sense. That they, that they are the largest by far the largest as a general religion in the world, 2.2 billion out of 8 billion in the world today, makes a lot of sense. It's the easiest package, and you get a lot of the, a certain amount of the beauty of Torah without any of the obligations. Are you? I was under the impression that the only reason it took off was because Constantine accepted it onto the entire Roman Empire. It was a major piece that we're going to talk about, too, because we're going to trace Christianity as it's developed in sync with history and Judaism. Both will have a, a major impact on one another, so that will be a piece in the in the in the in the puzzle about why they really took off and became so effective. And you're right, the Byzantine Empire plays a major role. But I'm talking in big terms. How do they buy this stuff? How do they go for this? I believe because it's absurd. 
come on, are you a rational thinking person? But don't confuse this with rationality. People ultimately long for meaning in life, and the Christian world provides a certain sense of meaning and structure and purpose and Messiah and all the rest of that, and it's easy. It's a, it's, it's a very attractive uh, new religion, yeah. But, but doesn't uh, Matthew actually change what Hillel says? And oh, for the, sure. He makes the golden rule, though. Right? He makes the golden rule, right? There's no question there are differences, but I, I'm just using that as an example of taking some of the beautiful ideas and then repackaging them. So, uh, they designed this new religion. It was for a world, you have to realize, appreciate the Roman world at this time. Here's a Roman world. The Roman Empire had conquered civilization, had upgraded civilization. We talked about that at length, of how now you have material splendor and wealth and comfort in a way that you never had before. Who in the ancient world ever heard of indoor bathrooms? And now in the Roman Empire, you could have indoor bathrooms, running water, uh, all kinds of decadent lifestyles. And you know this is true, that the more you have in the physical world, the more the soul craves meaning and spirituality. It's part of what we see today in the Western world. We have a leisure class society that literally has anything that it could want, and people are, are probably more depressed today than they ever have been in history. And you think, what are they depressed about? What's the problem? You realize in history that most people lived their lives, they were miserable. It was Dante's Inferno. And now today they have, they have such wealth, they have such, uh, you know, they, they have these gadgets, you probably wouldn't have heard of them, but you could say plugged into to video games 24-7 on, on these like little, I think smartphones, something like that, uh, that they have. Anyway, but, you know, and, and yet people are walking, uh, walking basket cases today, depressed like crazy, because they have everything, but they crave meaning, and, uh, and, and the early Christians knew that. And they, um, they, they designed this new religion to give their lives meaning. He took what the equivalent was, like in, in, the, in, in the movie industry, they would call it audience feedback. They heard what they wanted, and they gave, they gave them more. Early Christianity would have massive trappings of paganism, because, you know, if I'm, if I'm a pagan, and I'm thinking, you know, well, I don't know about this new religion, but hey, they got Christmas. We got Christmas, so they got Christmas. They took the trappings of the, of the pagan world, and they incorporated them into the Christian practice. So it felt comfortable. It felt like you were coming home when you were practicing uh, Christianity. Uh, many of these elements were designed to appeal to the broadest, widest audience imaginable. And the Romans never forgave them for it initially. The Romans persecuted them uh, mercilessly. They, they did not like the, the uh, Christian religion until the Christian religion will ultimately rise up and swallow the Romans, but that, we're ahead of ourselves, and Arya, you're right to talk about the Byzantine times, but that's not going to happen in the next few hundred years. In this early phase of Christianity, they're a small persecuted sect. Um, Paul, then, is one of the designers. The other designer is Shimon, whose Greek name is Petrus, translated sometimes as Peter. He's also a founder. Um, he also probably lived many years after Yeshua and was not a disciple directly. The, uh, their ideas have, as I said before, a lot of teachings that we associate with the Essenes, anti-women, anti-this world, anti-luxury. Um, yeah, they saw the physical as intrinsically evil. Um, they were pessimistic. Peter was very pessimistic in his teachings too. Humanity had no real hope for itself. Forget Shuva. That's not something. Since Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, um, so, you know, it's all downhill. Therefore, your only hope for salvation is to accept Jesus in your heart. It's not a coincidence that in their traditional Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a, a holy place to the Catholics and to the Eastern Orthodox, not to the Protestants, um, that the two graves that are there belong to Jesus and... Adam, because Adam, they're in a sense, they're two halves that make up a whole. Adam destroyed it for humanity, and Jesus was the antidote. That's, their, that's a major theological statement right there. That's how they saw things. That was Paul, that was Peter. Uh, there's a lot to say about this. The, um, there's a legend that Peter wrote, Nishmas, the tefillah that we say on Shabbos and Yantiv. Um, Rashi says it's Kfira. Anybody, it's, it's heretical to say that Peter of Russia could have written such a, uh, an important tefillah that we have till today. He said anybody who says that Peter wrote a tefillah like this, has to, when the Mashiach comes, will have to bring a big fat korban chatas for his sin. Um, what's that? We don't know. So Chazal brought a lot of these things down by tradition, all through Kodesh. Later Christians will make a lot about Peter being the first pope in Rome. 
But at the time, when Peter was schlepped off to Rome and then eventually crucified there, that's Pope, Pope, uh, Paul also met his end in Rome as well, by being crucified there as well. So at the time, they were a tiny, tiny, bedraggled group, persecuted. Uh, it was more like he was a leader of street people, like a little gang of people, not like, not like the Christians like to imagine that you have the first pope in the Vatican with the Sistine Chapel and all the uh, trappings of, of grandeur, nothing like that back in the day. Now, before we, before we leave off talking for the time being about the Christians, we'll get back to them, but they're going to weave into our narrative in general. There's one detail that's very difficult for the Christians to get around, and it's something we've been talking about, but let me make it clear. The Jews were the original chosen people. No? And they can't get around that basic statement in their New Testament. So their answer to that is, yes, the Jews were the original chosen people, and because they rejected Jesus, the Lord the Savior, therefore they are now the lowest of peoples. The New Testament, as they understand it, abrogates the old. The old is a nice detail, but the new is, 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 is really authoritative. Then they have a different question to answer. Then, if that's all true, how do you explain the continued existence of Klal Yisrael? How can we survive? If God rejected us, wouldn't he have stamped us out? That's difficult. And so later they develop, a, Augustine again, develops this idea of testi veritatis. We are the witness people. What is our job? When Jesus comes back a second time around, the Jewish people will be here to clunk themselves in the head and say, oops, all these years of stubbornness, we have to bear witness through history that Jesus really was coming full cycle, the ultimate God, and he came back full time. Um, and uh, they will keep it as a major priority to, um, to keep the Jews alive. The Pope will even, in the Middle Ages, create what's called the Pope's Jews so that we will survive. And so there'll be, a, there'll be Jews around. And there was con the reasonable concern that the anti-Semitism had reached such proportions that um, they were doing such an effective job, maybe they'd kill off the last Jew, and they didn't want that anymore. They wanted the Jews to continue, albeit in their, in their lowly persecuted state, because that made them feel good about themselves. They were threatened by Jews. Do you know, for example, what Herzl was told by a cardinal, uh, one of the assistants to the Pope, when he came around in the early 1900s trying to get support for a Jewish state. So the cardinal had no problem looking, looking Theodore Herzl in the eye and saying, a state, a Jewish state? You rejected our Lord, your Savior. The Pope will certainly not support any Jewish state because to do so is to reject thousands of years of Christian theology. Do you realize the implications of a Jewish state? That means maybe God hadn't rejected us after all. Do you know that after 1948, when Israel declared independence, almost every sovereign power in the world recognized the Jewish state? Okay, begrudgingly as an enemy often with the Arab states, but they recognized that it was Israel. The only, the last holdout that officially refused to recognize that there was a state of Israel that was a Jewish state was the Vatican, 1992. It took till 1992 for the Vatican to officially recognize the state of Israel. Same problem. If the Jewish people are here, they're alive and well, and they're actually thriving in their homeland, then maybe that whole comment, the whole concept of testi veritatis, the whole concept of supersessionism, of replacement theology was mistaken at, at the get-go. Are there sterilizations that don't accept Israel? What's that? Every, every nation accepts the state well, of they, Israel. Well, they, they, they don't accept its existence, but they acknowledge that it exists. The Vatican didn't even officially have it in the books. Oh, okay. That was the difference. Um, the Ramban turns all this around, and we'll get to the Ramban in the, in the 13th century. The Ramban says that the continued existence of Klal Yisrael, despite the centuries of persecution, actually reveals God's love and is proof that Hashem ultimately favors the Jews. But that's not the way the Christians like to see the world. Um, we're going to return to the narrative and we're going to start to wind down towards the inevitable in the last decades before Chorban Beis Mikdash, what was going on in Eretz Yisrael. I'm going to start the topic now. We have, we have, we have uh, another 15 minutes um, and we'll pick up, we'll, we'll, we'll continue this as we wind down soon towards the Chorban, the destruction. Um, there's a new figure on the block. If you have your, oh, somebody nice, doodled nicely on our, on our on our uh, Hasmonean dynasty line. But if you, were t if you were continually filling in some of the figures, you remember that Herod and Miriam, according to Josephus at least, 
had these two sons, Aristobulus and Alexandrus, and then Herod had them hanged in Shechem. Do you remember the story? Yeah. So um, it seems that uh, um, Aristobulus, before he was hanged, had a son, and it seems that that son's name was Agrippus, the first Agrippus. Uh, Maybe you know the street near Machane Yehuda, named for him. There are two Agrippuses. The first and his son is Agrippus II. But the first Agrippus, his parents were Aristobulus. And again, if you believe that maybe it was Miriam's son, or Miller says it's not Miriam's grandson, okay. Uh, but Agrippus now is in line for some kind of power. The... Uh, He comes from, on the one side, Aristobulus. His mother was a woman named Berenike, who was the daughter of Shlomi, Herod's sister. The whole family tree is incredibly overlapping and confusing because they all seem to like three or four names and give them all, all the same names to their kids. Um, Agrippus had a righteous wife named Kypros, and his wife was the daughter of Petzal, Herod's brother, and also the daughter of um, Shlomsi, the Basmiriami, all interrelated, cousins bearing cousins. Um, I'm going to mention this now because it is helpful to keep track of this if you're making notes. Um, Agrippus I has five children. Three of them are important for us. Um, Berenike, we're going to hear a lot about, is one of them, I guess in English you'd call her Bernice. There's a mountain above Tiberias called Har, named in the modern day Har Berenike that might have some connection to her. Um, Miriam, we know very little about. We know that she was, uh, she was mostly uh, a Yeri Shemaim, but we don't know much else. Drusilla, another Greek name. Agrippus II, and then there was the youngest one named Drusus who dies young and we don't know much about. But I just mentioned those names. They're all going to play a role now as the, uh, as the end of the Second Temple period winds down. The father now, Agrippus I, he's a pretty colorful figure. He is from the Herodian family. And he's Hellenized, and he's Greek, and he actually grows up in Rome, and he gets his education there, and he's a wealthy young man. Remember, Herod left a big wealth, a great wealth for his family. He carouses with the nobility; they're decadent. Uh, he's like his grandfather Herod, and of course, when in Rome, does the Romans, and he most certainly does. He has a lot of money, but he's a generous kind of a spirit, and he likes to lavish uh, lots of expensive gifts on his friends, and he winds up working through his entire inheritance, giving away gifts, and he falls into debt. But he is bailed out by friends who are very loyal to him, and among his friends is another son of nobility in Rome, a fellow by the name of Caligula. Now, back to the Roman monarchy. Uh, when we last left our anti-heroes... Not yet. Hold off. He's coming around. Let me connect all the dots here. So now, when we last left, we know when Julius Caesar died, Augustus was Caesar for many years, 57 years. He would be assassinated. Um, his wife's son, Tiberius, will take over. Tiberius now dies. <laughs> now, Tiberius had a... His wife's son was full name Gaius Caligula, and Caligula becomes the fourth Caesar. And one of the first things that um, Caligula does when he becomes the Caesar is he exiles Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was Herod's son, builder of Tiberias. And he, he sends them all the way to distant Gaul, which is modern-day France. Gaelic, Gaul, that's France. Um, is that where Rashi comes from? Uh, that's in the north of France. Rashi was more in the south of France, but that general region. Was there like another exile to France, or is this the main? No, 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 this is just Herod Antipas. He goes out, he's just exiled to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. <laughs> also true, there was an overlap. It overlapped the borders, no question. Now, Caligula, still loyal to his old buddy, Agrippus I, he now crowns, instead of Herod Antipas, he crowns Agrippus I as the new king over Judea. Um, the year that Agrippus becomes the king, uh, a, an illiterate shepherd has his 40th birthday party and then goes off to start learning the Aleph base. His name is Akiva ben Yosef. 
just to tie all the various uh, strands of history together and then you can picture all these things happening. Rabbi Kiva will live this very long life so that these things are happening simultaneously makes some sense. Caligula is, an, is a madman without doing a complete uh, summary and description of what of his atrocities. Uh, a few to illustrate the point, he has incest with three of his sisters. He murders family members and friends and most m many, many people in Rome. He actually, Rome is desperate, they're starving, and he leaves them to starve as he carries on his uh, decadent way of life. He, yeah. Oh, uh, just a fun fact about Caligula. He once tried to wage a war on Poseidon to murder all of his men down to the coast of Italy and had them stab the water. He has the men stab the water in the co on the coast of Italy to wage, war to wage a war against the god of the god of the water Poseidon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genius, Caligula was. Now, one of the things that Caligula liked to do, and this is not a, a, at all a, a new idea, but he demands that a statue of himself be built and worshipped in every Roman city. And Jerusalem is not going to be an exception. And of course, the main place in Jerusalem is the Temple Mount, and he insists that the Jews build. In all the Jewish cities, and certainly and including Jerusalem, they should build this. And the Jews, collectively, in Eretz Yisrael and in the diaspora, refuse. And the Jews have Hellenized enemies, and the enemies use this as an opportunity. They, they, slant, they, they go and they report to the, to the Caesar, and they say, hey, you've got traitors in your midst. The Jews around the empire refuse to build a statue to the, to the Caesar. And Caligula is about to get his vengeance, and it's a scary time for for Klal Yisrael. It's approximately the year 40 in the Common Era, 40 CE. The Jews send messengers to Rome to try to plead their case. One of the messengers is a philosopher by the name of Philo from Alexandria, Egypt, who writes one of the early accounts of, of the Jews during this period. Uh, but all the attempts to talk sense to uh, Caligula fail, and it finally falls to Agrippus I, his old college buddy, to intervene, and Agrippus sends the Caesar, he doesn't have much money left, but with whatever money he can raise, he sends Caligula so many gifts that the Caesar's overwhelmed, and Caligula's at the point that he's willing to give Agrippus anything. And he says, Agrippus, whatever you want, and Agrippus says, I don't want anything, please, please just forgive the Jews and let their misbehavior pass and don't punish them. And Caligula agrees. So we have a, for a change, refreshingly, we have a loyal subject in the position of, of ruler, governor of Judea in the form of Agrippus I who intervenes on our behalf. Uh, later on, Caligula's hacked to pieces. Uh, that's how he meets his end. Um, there's a period of anarchy in Rome and then later on he's replaced with the new Caesar, Claudius who's the nephew of Tiberius, he's the fifth Caesar, and Agrippus also has good connections with Claudius. That's the political situation in Eretz Yisrael. Meanwhile, out in Bavel, throughout the Second Temple, um, the Jewish life is centered in the city of, anybody remember? We had it in our Gemara. Nahardah, Pomedisi doesn't exist yet. Nahardah, Nahardea. It's on the River Pras, on the Euphrates River. Um, there's another center in Mahosa, another prominent place we hear about a lot in the Gemara. Um, the Jews from these communities send every year their machzits a shekel. Uh, for, the Torah, for, the, for the temple fund, they send korbanos to the base of Mikdash. They're Ola Regal still. But something develops in Bavel at this period, during this period that's significant. Two Jewish orphan <laughs> brothers their names are Hasinai and Hanilai. Anybody know this? A little important, important uh, detail in history, especially since Bavel's the most significant diaspora. These two brothers are orphans and eventually turn to a life of crime. And they're mighty warriors and they amass what we would look at as a criminal gang, a mafia, around themselves. And they build a castle in the middle of a swampland. And they form their own little no-man's land, their own little fiefdom. And the ruling power in Bavel are the Parthians, the Parthim, who um, the brothers are so effective that they're able to hold off and create their own little vassal state in the middle of Bavel for about 15 years. That's a whole story that's full of intrigue and not so meaningful for us. 
uh, I'll, I'll, bring, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple small points. Um, one is that, I mean, these are not good guys. These are Khalilai and Khasilai, are, 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 are not Sadiqim on any stretch, of, uh, any stretch of the imagination. However, at one point, Khalilai says, you know, um, at one point there was a chance that they should fight a war on Shabbos, and he said, we should not be Mechal Shabbos, we should even die and not, not fight on Shabbos. And um, Khasinai convinces him, no, no, self-defense is mutter, you're allowed to do that. But that you find even in these low-level Jews in this period, there is a very strong religious sensibility. There is a strong habamina we should die not, and, and not violate Shabbos. Um, even the Amiya Aretz were Moser Nefesh. Now, uh, both brothers lead very violent lives. There's intrigue, there's soap opera. Finally, the last brother is assassinated and the Parthians are upset at the Jews and they take out their wrath on the, on the Babylonian Jewish population. They kill and exile many of them. And Bavel now knows a very dark period. For the Jewish people, it's really the first very black period that we experience in Bavel. Um, it will stop being a Torah center for about 200 years. It takes until Rav eventually comes back and builds up Surah uh, for, for Bavel to reemerge as a Torah center and then it will be the Torah center in the world for centuries. But this is what's going on in Bavel. Now, a little bit more on Agrippus and then that's, that's it for the day. Agrippus is not like his Greek predecessors, not like the Hellenized Jews. He loves the Torah, he loves Chazal, and um, he's very generous, and he, chan he channels his generous nature now into helping Jews bring korbanos. If they can't afford it, he'll pay for them. He's a very colorful personality. You've got to love Agrippus on some level, no? He's flawed. We'll see. He's not a perfect person. But the fact that he had this generous spirit, he channels it to Torah, uh, that's, that's, that's really uh, admirable. Um, he himself gives lots of korbanos, very generous personality, lots of, acts of, lots of chesed. He has a righteous wife named Kipros, we've mentioned before. She does not make a move without first consulting the Gadol Ador. She asks Shilas to Rabban Gamliel. She encourages others to ask Shilas too. And then it happens. Probably the most famous story with Agrippus. It, it's brought to us in the Gemara and Sota. The year is the Motzi Shvi's year. It's the year after the Shemitah year. Agrippus is acting as king. Of course, the title is just a for, is, is just is a formality. He's not really the king. There's no base David. Uh, the Romans made him king, and he receives the Sefer Torah with a lot of pomp and circumstance from the Kohen Gadol. He stands in the Ezra's Noshim in front of the people. It's time for Hakel. If you know about the mitzvah from the Torah, there's a mitzvah for the king to read from Sefer Tzvarim, Mishnah Torah. Uh, to all of the people, and that's what Agrippus is doing. He loves the Torah, and he loves playing the figurehead of king, and so he's about to read from Sefer Tvarim. And as he's doing so, he, he opens up to Parsha Shoftim, to what's called Parsha Samelech, we learn about a king, what makes a qualified Jewish king, and he gets the, to the same pasuk that stymied his grandfather Herod. The pasuk says, from among your brothers, you should place upon you a king. You can't put upon yourself a non-Jewish man who's not from your brothers. But when Agrippus gets to this pasuk, he knows enough to know that he is an invalid king, and he breaks down and cries. And your heart goes out to him. Because here's a guy who means well, and he's trying to help Klal Yisrael. He's such Chesed. He's so generous. After all, he appealed to us. He was our man uh, to appeal to us uh, when Caligula was going to have his way. And Chazal, the Chachamim who were present, say something they shouldn't have said. They say, don't worry. I'll quote, they don't worry, Agrippus. Achinu Atta. It's a Mishnah. Achinu Atta. You're our brother. You are our brother. Don't fret. You are our brother. Which isn't a lie. Because technically, his mother was Jewish, but come on. You're not, you're not the brother in the sense that the Pasuk meant that you have to descend from base David. You have to be a, a legitimately born a Jew for the, you know, from a Jewish lineage. You were not qualified to be king, and they were implying that he was. And Chazal say that this is Hanufa. Do you know the word? It's an important word. In history, I'm trying to teach you basic Judaism basics. Hanufa means flattery, manipulative flattery that's wrong. And it says, Hanufa mishum shalom malchus. What you're doing is trying to ingratiate yourself to the powers. Um, 
is a, is a bad sin, especially your grandfather was just an Eved. And the Yerushalmi concludes, Lots of Jewish uh, deaths occurred on that day. Where they were obsequious to Paro, eh, to, Paro to, to, uh, to, uh, to Agrippus. On that day, the Gemara says, Dean declines, there's less justice in the world, and corruption and anarchy increase. We can, darshan, we can say it's a twist, it's a distortion of Emes. Anytime the Jews twist Emes, uh, it's dangerous. You get sometimes the impression that uh, you know Jews sometimes build up the diaspora, they have these beautiful communities, and they, they start to live with the lives of the best of all possible worlds. And you forget, no, 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 the Jews are meant to be in Eretz Yisrael. Right? We should remind ourselves when something's not quite right. Um, so this, this would be a dark chapter. It's no fault of Agrippus, but he was the catalyst around which this, this chapter happens. Um, there'll be a few more episodes with Agrippus, but I'll continue with those tomorrow. And, um, and we'll talk about some other interesting uh, phenomena as, as we wind down towards the uh, Overbite Chamber.